Good morning, everyone. Greet you in Jesus' name. And invite you to turn to a depressing passage of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3. We won't uh, stay in this passage all through the service. And I do hope that though this uh, is a little depressing to read right at the outset here, I, I hope that the subject and as we work through this, that we're encouraged actually. Um, it's, uh, it's an important and central issue that this message deals with. Let's read these first four verses of 2 Timothy 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. A depressing description of our times and of mankind, unregenerate mankind. One time I saw a, we had some company over and I saw a couple of little boys, about two years old, playing together and they both wanted a toy tractor and wagon and there was tussling and grabbing and jerking and angry hollering. And a father of one of them knelt beside them and he said, I think we've got some selfishness here. And he settled the problem. We expect that kind of behavior in children. We've seen it in our homes and families and it needed attention. It needs to be dealt with. They must learn to share and to get along with others. But we're not shocked when we see that in little children. It's kind of normal that it shows up like that. We don't expect grown-ups to behave that way. If we see an adult, if we saw an adult crying and throwing a tantrum because he didn't get the big piece, biggest piece of pie, or because someone else has a tool he wanted to use, we'd think it was just pathetic. It would be really kind of abnormal to uh, see somebody acting that way. But growing up doesn't solve the problem of selfishness. Most adults learn some common courtesies and manners and certain social restraints that are expected of adults. But self-centeredness, selfishness 
can not only be as real as ever, but stronger. And it can even surface in Christians who have named the name of Jesus. That lovers of their of their uh, of themselves precedes a list of sins that we just read that can be traced directly to selfishness. Men are covetous because they're selfish. They boast because they want to talk about themselves. They're proud because they want to be better than others and compare themselves with others. They blaspheme because they're disrespectful of authority, of God even, over them. They disobey because they want their will, not anyone else's. They're ungrateful because they think that they are only deserved the things that they get, even good gifts. They're unholy because they put their pleasure, hold their pleasure more important than God's standards. And without natural affection, there's an, a degree of, of uh, unloving, lack of love toward others, even to an inhuman disregard. And truce breakers, breaking promises, it's not to my advantage anymore. False accusers, tearing other people down, incontinent, lacking self-control, just yielding to their own selfish pleasure or passions and urges. They're fierce, the King James says, angry toward others and treating them harshly. They despise good people. They have bad attitudes toward the righteous uh, whose lives prick their conscience like Esau hated Jacob. They're traitors when their ends are served. They're heady. They trash better knowledge instead of thinking things through and thinking what they what God or goodness would have them do. And they're high-minded. They think too highly of themselves. And that's a, that's a list of things that Paul gave of people that are lovers of their own selves, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. And it's a, a good definition of self-centeredness, loving ourself and pleasure more than loving God. So instead of allegiance to God, and obeying command number one to love him with all our heart and soul and strength. And number two, to love our neighbors as ourselves. These people that Timothy or that Paul was describing to Timothy are lovers of themselves. So they disregard God and God's claims. 
on them and God's commandments. And they disregard others and the needs of others and the best interests of others and the rights and feelings, fairness toward others. Rather, number one is me, self-centeredness. Not God first, not others first, but me first. The Bible talks about this in other places. In Romans, Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, says this, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good works, words, by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. They're people who, uh, uh, these people are serving their own appetites. People who are serving their own appetites First, their own appetites are ruling. Those people aren't serving Christ, is what Paul said in a letter to the Romans. Philippians 3, verse 19 says that a self-centered life brings destruction. In... uh, the couple of verses there ahead of Philippians 3.19, Paul said, follow my example. Not everyone is. And I tell you, even weeping of these people who follow their own lusts, whose end in verse 19 is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. And the Bible says also that we've all been like that to some degree. All we like sheep in Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, our Savior, the iniquity of us all. Turn to his own way. Selfishness. But even after we have uh, surrendered to Jesus and committed ourselves to following Him, and there's that cleansing, and there is changing, and even after we're living in that new life, most of us have found, I have found, that there are uprisings. And there are outbreaks of resistance against the surrender terms. And self-centeredness surfaces again. 
a little like putting out a thought about a thought about it. It's a little like putting out a grass fire uh, in dry grass, and you can smack around with a shovel or or uh, a damp bag or something, and smack it out, and you think you've got it all out, and sure enough, here it pops up somewhere else, and it's uh, it takes a little while. It can show up when we're facing a temptation and we yield. It can show up when we review, when we review something we've heard, a critical remark that troubles us and we review it over and over again. When there's constant concern about what others are thinking of me more than what God is thinking of me. When we listen for compliments. When we're, uh, when we're afraid to take our part for fear of messing up. It affects our homes. When dad gets impatient with a six-year-old's questions. When a teen neglects his share of the chores. When mom complains that she'd like a new kitchen range. And she knows the finances are tight. It shows up on the job when a when an employee grabs the easiest and most interesting job, and when his a fellow employee is disgusted that he got that easy and interesting job, or when the employer fudges on a bonus that he had mentioned, almost promised, it can show up in church when someone feels that his opinion is not respected, it's ignored, when there's deep disappointment that one didn't get a church office that he had kind of wished for pretty much, and oversensitivity and easily wounded and nursing grudges can happen. It affects the mission field. Not only relationships, but people getting there. Even people supporting from here. Sometimes funds, funding suffers. And so the battle goes on. And sometimes we forget that God's ways are perfect and God's ways are best. Or we momentarily forget God's ways or forget the damage, the harm that we do ourselves and our testimonies and God's work.
as his servants. We'd like to be free of it and be spiritually mature and but when we mean business and we seriously uh, understand surrender and commitment and want to know God's will and we want to know Christ and we confess our sins it brings maturing because God changes us and there will be growth. In Romans 6, turn with me there. Romans 6, and I'll read a few verses beginning at verse uh, 11. Romans 6, verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin, selfishness, therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, but you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being, made, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. <clears throat> and then the familiar uh, couple verses in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We're invited here in this, uh, in these scriptures First, to yield ourselves to the blessed, kind call of God, a living sacrifice, that we're still alive, we're able to choose, 
were able to be useful in service. A holy, set apart for God, acceptable sacrifice without compromise, without reservation. That's what he's describing. It's not an agreement with God that after I'm dead, I'm yours. It's not as in we're donating our bodies for research after we die. But it is rather a living sacrifice that God has a person, a living person devoted to him that God will then fill with his spirit and begin his work of sanctification and transformation. A new life. No longer following the world, but transformed by the renewing of the mind, the continuous work of God's Spirit so that we can discern the good and the acceptable and perfect will of God. And it is a change in our focus no longer locked on me and selfishness, but it is, it is locked on Jesus Christ. And it is a transference of control from the self to the Lord Jesus. And God's Spirit has to help us to work that. He works that change in us. Now, doing unselfish deeds does not mean I'm unselfish. I must have an unselfish heart, not self-centered. Rather, it's focused on God and on others. Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. The same thing Paul was saying to the Romans. Now, denying self does not necessarily mean it, it is not the self-denial that is skipping dessert or not buying a new sweater. Denying self is dethroning self, denying its authority and power. It involves disregarding self, selfishness, it's losing sight of selfishness. It's forgetting self and its own interests. Uh, one translation would bring out. Just say no to self. It is not denying our personality. It doesn't make us a non-person. But rather it gives us freedom to become what God designed us to be. Christ-like, not cluttered with selfishness.
There's a lot of talk, uh, has been for years, in, in popular psychology about self-esteem and the importance of self-esteem, which is often, in many cases, it's an upscale term for selfishness and self-centeredness. I read one time in a news article that, that psychologists have thought for years, they have thought that raising the self-esteem of violent offenders could maybe help them be better people. But uh, a study was done on crime and aggression, and the results of that study was that there was no evidence linking violence to low self-image. And so these researchers thought, well, maybe um, a high self-esteem might be the problem. When a person with an inflated ego feels threatened, and he said, one of them said, does anyone really think that the cause of world peace would be promoted if we boosted the self-esteem of brutal dictators? His idea was maybe it would be better to try instilling some modesty and humility. Now, I understand there, there is a, a right kind of, you can call it self-esteem, that is a proper self-respect and and uh, confidence that God would have us have, but it is not that self-esteem that I feel better when I'm over everybody and I'm getting my way and, and uh, actually is, is rooted in selfishness. Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. And he followed that with, take up, and take up his cross. This is Matthew 16, verse 24. The cross that Jesus is referring to here is not just an affliction. It could be an affliction, but it's not just an affliction or suffering that is our lot. <clears throat> it is the consequences of identifying with Jesus and conforming to his righteousness. It is a process, the choice of serving Christ instead of self and earthly material. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And then he says, and follow me. And follow me.
And that brings us back to what Jesus said were the first and second commandments, that we should love God first. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And in Luke 14, 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Really, Luke was saying the same thing that Matthew was saying. And, ba and one translation, I remember, said it this way, except a man love less his father and mother and wife and children. God, we love God. We love Jesus. First, first of all. And then we serve others. We love God. We serve others. What would Jesus do in this situation that I'm facing right now? How would Jesus respond? We know that he would not put himself first, but Jesus was a servant. In Romans 15, verse 3, for even Christ pleased not himself. He served others. One time, um, the... Uh, what they call him, General Booth, the uh, Commander Booth, the head of the Salvation Army. He's long gone. But he started the Salvation Army and all the good work they do and everything. And they were having a convention somewhere and he was sick and not able to be there. But he sent a message to be shared with uh, all the uh, Salvation Army people. And the message was one word, others others. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24, let no man seek his own, but every man and others' wealth. And Paul wrote in Philippians 2, verse 3, regarding others in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. In Colossians 3, verse 13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Think, what could I do to support, to encourage, to help, to make this situation better? What makes that person tick? What, how can I understand him? How can I serve him? Then there's this piece of 
Christian charity that Paul wrote in Romans 12, verse 15, to rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. No jealousy, but rather rejoicing and sympathizing with the suffering. Galatians 6, 2. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Surrender. Denying self and taking up Christ's cross and following Jesus and serving others. Abraham was an Old Testament character, but he, he was an outstanding person. He had his weak moments, but he was a man of faith. Uh, in the New Testament, he's called the friend of God in one place. And uh, I was reading recently about his life and in Genesis and uh, read the story of him and Lot. And they were quite a mass, uh, quite, a, quite a group of people. It may have been as many, some think, as a thousand people, as well as herds and flocks. And you remember how when Lot was with him, that Lot's servants and Abraham's servants had a conflict because uh, for grazing rights and water rights and whatever, there just wasn't enough um, pasture and water to support the, the flocks they had. So there was disagreement and arguing. And Abraham called Lot to him and they had a conversation. And Abraham said, there's, there's too many. This isn't working. And he generously said to Lot, look all around here. Look what's here. Look down there in the valley. You take what you want. You choose. And Lot looked around and he saw the sparse grass and the rocky soil and the scarcity of water. And he looked down at the Jordan, the plain there beside the Jordan and the green grass and the plentiful water. And it doesn't seem like it took him very long to come to a conclusion. I think I'll go down there. He chose, he chose the very, very best. He suffered for it too. And so they left. He gathered up his flocks and herds and took down his tents and his people followed him and they went down to the valley. And Abram, he was still Abram at that point, was left with what was left, which wasn't real rich. He 
we don't hear him complaining. Surrender to God. God blessed him abundantly, abundantly. He told him shortly after, he said, as far as you can see, that way, this way, that way, this way, as far as you can see, that's all yours and your descendants. Abram was satisfied. He built an altar to God and worshipped Him. We surrender, we deny self and take up our cross and follow Jesus and live a life of service. And we need to practice that. Pray and practice. Pray and obey. Pray and practice. And that is simply saying that we, we think about who we are and we think about it that we are gods. Um, we think Jesus first, myself last, and others in between, like the little song says. In Ephesians 4, But ye have not so learned Christ, the selfish life. If so be ye have heard Him, ye have heard Jesus, and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, the selfish man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And when we do that, and we're giving less place to the devil, Ephesians 4.27, and fewer provisions for the flesh, in Romans 13, 14. It, God's Spirit, what this is talking about here, uh, it has room, God's Spirit has room to work and sanctify and recreate that righteousness and true holiness within us. That hold is weakened. Selfishness is weakened and it strengthens in us the spirit of Christ and the fruit of Christ-likeness. And that little song is about joy. Jesus first, myself last, and others in between. I'm not using, what's yourself last? Yeah. I would have J-O-M, wouldn't I? We want joy. But there is joy in that life. Not only because it's a good life and we know we're pleasing God, but because it's a fruit of the Spirit. And it, uh, 
it resides in the greatest abundance where there is the deepest surrender and denial and following of Jesus and serving others. Loving God first and more than anything and our neighbors as ourselves. May the Lord bless us and make us fruitful. Mm-hmm.